Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Emma Copley-Eisenberg, her work has appeared in Granta, McSweeney's, VQR, Tin House, and The New Republic, among other outlets, and has been recognized by the Malay Colony, the Helene Wurlitzer Foundation, the Elizabeth Elizabeth George Foundation, Lambda Literary, and Longreads Best Crime Reporting. She lives in Philadelphia, where she directs Blue Stoop, a hub for literary arts. Uh, she'll be reading for about 10-15 minutes, and then she'll be joined by Steph Chaw. Steph is the author of the Juniper Song Crime Trilogy. She's an editor and critic whose work has appeared in the LA Times, USA Today, and the LA Review of Books, a native of the San Fernando Valley. She lives in LA with her husband and two basset hounds. Um, at this time, please welcome Emma. Friends, thank you. Cool, thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on this Wednesday. Um, it's really nice to see you all. Thank you to Skylight for having me. Thank you so much for to Steph for being in conversation even when sick. Steph's book is amazing. Um, you should read it. It's an amazing and complicated story of um, race and violence that's ever more relevant today, I feel, even though I believe it's based um, in a period in Los Angeles' history several decades ago. Um, I'm going to read to you a little bit from The Third Rainbow Girl, which is a little bit of a strange book in the sense that uh, it has three components. It's a story of these crimes that happened in 1980 in West Virginia. Um, Basically, there was this rainbow festival. I don't know if folks are familiar with the rainbows. People are nodding. They still It still exists today, but it was really more like sort of maybe like a Burning Man at the time in like the late 70s, like a thing that you would go and do with your friends, like an adventure, but didn't necessarily like define your way of life. Um, they're a sort of back to nature, very loosely organized group of folks who gather in national public lands. So they were having a gathering in this very rural part of West Virginia. People came like 15, 20,000 people came from elsewhere. These two women ended up dead. And the ways that this events in the investigation around the crime um, really can teach us bigger things about what this place is and also about the ways that uh, this place's history interacts with um, what we think currently about Appalachia and West Virginia more broadly. And then the last uh, part of the book or sort of thread is... Um, that I came to this part of West Virginia uh, when I was young, after school, uh, as a AmeriCorps VISTA, so someone that was technically there to serve or to serve um, against, you know, to, to ameliorate poverty was like the official idea of it. And my sort of ambivalence and questioning of what it means to be an outsider, be someone that's there supposedly for this um, helping purpose, and then also, also the ways that my own experiences in this place began to like rhyme and resonate with the other two strands of the book. So, um, 
I'm gonna, I just got to chat last night with Vanessa Veselka, who's this amazing writer in Portland who wrote the, a piece that was really helpful for me in thinking about um, conceptualizing, like, how do you write about women who uh, are traveling and who die as a result of those travels without sort of pathologizing them or making them seem um, uh, like victims? And she really inspired me to, uh, to read some of the hitchhiking sections. So I'm going to read you a little bit about this um, kind of trio road trip that these women took. There's a little bit of death, and then there's a little bit of road trip. So um, be, be prepared. Okay. By the morning after the murders, Thursday, June 26th, 1980, the news covered the southern part of Pocahontas County like a fog and then moved north towards Marlinton. Wives called their husbands at work. Children turned to face their classmates at the school bus and then told their parents over dinner what they'd learned. In the restaurant of the Marlinton Motor Inn, at Miss Kitty's Beer Joint, at Dory's Lunch Counter, in the front yard of Oak Grove Presbyterian Church in Hillsboro, the story spread. Two girls had been found on Briary Knob, shot to death, 19 and 26, so young. A fear that gripped the throat and stomach. Some parents wanted to keep their children home from school. Outside the Marathon Station in Hillsboro was an ice machine and a bench for shooting the shit, usually occupied by retirees and older men drinking coffee from styrofoam cups. By the gas pumps, a volunteer ambulance driver for the Hillsboro Fire Department was holding forth for a small crowd. I had a hell of an ambulance call last night, he said. He had been the one to drive the dead women's bodies from Briary Knob to the hospital in Marlinton. Someone asked if the women were local, and the ambulance driver said no, but the rumor was the people who did the killings were. Those gathered agreed. No one not from Pocahontas County would know how to get to Briary. June 25th was a Wednesday, and the Pocahontas Times went to press Wednesday nights, so the news of the young man's discovery in the woods didn't hit kitchen tables until a full week later. Tragedy struck Pocahontas County with the finding last Wednesday night of the bodies of two young women on the Briary Knob Road, the Times reported. In an effort to identify them, the paper ran two thumb-sized photos of the corpses. For days after Nancy's sister identified the bodies, sheriff's deputies in West Virginia and Iowa searched for the elusive Liz. Authorities in every American state were sent her description. It seems now that a third girl may be involved, reported the editor of the Pocahontas Times. She is believed to be a small, a small, a tall, slender blonde named Elizabeth. The area around Briary Knob was checked and rechecked for this, quote, third rainbow girl. A week later, the investigator's phone rang at the state police headquarters. My name is Elizabeth Jondro, the voice said, and I'm alive. Liz met Vicki Durian at the co-op grocery store in Tucson, just as Nancy had. So there's three um, women on this who become important. Um, two of them, Vicki and Nancy, do end up dying, um, but they're all sort of friends. They become friends together, hitchhike across the country, and then, as you will see, make different choices. Liz was hanging outside the store with her backpack when Vicky tore off a hunk of the crusty bread she'd bought and handed it to her. Liz had hopped out of a van headed west earlier that day and didn't know anyone in town. Vicky had put down some roots and had a mentor's warm energy. They walked the three blocks to Vicky's apartment, which she shared with two other women. She'd been to Tucson about six months and worked as a nurse in the homes of elderly people in the area to pay the bills. There were already a few people camping in tents in her backyard and another couple living out of a truck who, that was parked in the front. 
All Vicky had left to offer Liz was a closet. Would that work? It was a big closet. When Vicky wasn't working, she and Liz walked all over Tucson. Vicky knew the restaurants, supermarkets, bakeries, and produce suppliers that threw away perfectly good food, so they dumpster-dived and prepared what they found in big dinners for whoever happened to be staying at Vicky's that night. They sat on the steps of Vicky's home with the other travelers and talked. Someone knew beadwork, and from then on, that's what they did with their hands. Vicky took Liz to parties at the sprawling communal house where Nancy had stayed, but Liz and Nancy didn't meet each other. The house was a real hippie household. They juiced everything, drank wheatgrass, kept a kombucha mother in the fridge, which did not surprise Liz. Almost nothing surprised Liz then. She was 18, but she felt much older, felt that she had seen it all, done it all, drugged it all. So when, a few months after arriving in Tucson, Liz heard about a hippie outlaw commune in the desert, she figured it was as good time as any to, to head there. Its residents were several families from Arkansas who had been caught growing pot by the kilo and others who were hiding out from the law. Some of them had been to last year's rainbow gathering. Go, they told Liz. She had saved some money, but it was stolen at the commune. She went anyway. Liz was in a school bus on her way to Washington State, another adventure, but then Mount St. Helens erupted, covering the entire Pacific Northwest from Idaho to Alberta in Ash. She caught a ride out of Portland and arrived in Iowa a few days after Vicki and Nancy. Liz could calculate the miles they needed to cover and about how long it should take them to get there. But it was Vicky who would lean over and make people stop, and Vicky who would talk to them about who they were and where they were headed, while Nancy hung back on the road's shoulder. There was the woman who drove past them because she was too scared to pick up three hitchhikers, and then turned back because she felt she should. They were women. They got a ride in an RV from another woman who told them, send me a postcard when you get where you're going. A truck driver let them off at a truck stop in Illinois and told them about a baseball field nearby where they could get a safe night's sleep. There was a Christian guy who took them home to his family for dinner. They had a gun pulled on them. The guy told them he just wanted them to know he had it. Then he put the gun away and drove on. In Louisville, they were riding in a semi-truck with a bench seat, and the driver started grabbing at Vicky, who was sitting next to him. When they stopped at a traffic light, Vicky grabbed his deodorant can and sprayed him in the face with it, and the trio hopped out and ran. Vicky taught Liz how to juggle. They had a tent, but never used it. That's how clear the sky was. Vicky had brought a small drum in a velvet case, and she played it if she couldn't sleep. The, free, the three friends reached Charleston, West Virginia, ahead of schedule. Vicky wanted to go to the beach, said they had time, and Liz and Nancy agreed. A guy picked them up and drove them to a big old mansion on Sullivan's Island, South Carolina. He had homebrew, he made his own furniture, and the women talked with him a while, swam with him off the coast, and spent the night in his rambling home. They'd intended to spend another night camping on the beach, but it rained. They left the next day, catching a ride in an empty trailways bus up into North Carolina and planned to make it to the gathering the following day. But that night, Liz had a feeling she should call home and acted on it. Her father was getting remarried in Vermont that week. She decided to part ways with Vicki and Nancy. At a truck stop in Richmond, Virginia, the three women said their goodbyes. Liz stood on a road headed north. Vicki and Nancy stood across from her so they could catch a ride headed west towards the gathering. A truck stopped and picked her up, Liz told the investigator, and she didn't know what had happened to her friends after that. 
So that's the first part, which gives you a little sense of um, what the case is. And also it was really important to me to make the women who died like human people who had um, interesting and complicated lives and reasons for um, going on this adventure in the first place. And then I'm gonna read you a little bit that's um, one fun thing about writing a book like this that has so much history. Um, I did a lot of research. I got to go down some really fun um, sort of uh, wormholes of knowledge and questioning, read a lot of uh, theory and psychology and sociology and all the things, and I tried to like put that into the machine crank, 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 and then out comes, hopefully, a better <laughs> narrative and what I've learned for you all. So this is a section, um, th this idea of belief, like why, do, why does one person believe a story or a theory of a crime and another person doesn't, um, becomes really important in the book. So I did a lot of thinking and researching about what is belief, like why do we, some people believe and some others don't. So this is just a small section that speaks to that. The precise process we are talking about when we say believe and where we think it happens, the brain, the heart, the stomach, are poorly understood. So there is this investigator named Debbie DeFalco who comes in later um, and she, you don't have to know too much about her except for she doesn't believe the dominant theory that other people believe about the crime, which is that it was done by a local person. So that's who she is. Debbie DeFalco believed this other theory that this, the killer had not been local, while the investigators from Pocahontas County did not. We tend to treat believability as if it were synonymous with truthfulness or akin to solving a mathematical equation, but the relationship between what is believable and what is true, and further, what makes a story believable to one listener but not to another, turn out to be some of the murkiest parts of human, human cognition. The 12 jurors who voted to convict the local farmer, there also is no such thing as spoilers in this book because I give you all of the information up front, much to the chagrin of many ladies on Goodreads, um, but that is true, because the book is much more about like why and um, what does it mean than what, you know? So um, the 12 jurors who voted to convict the local farmer were given the following instructions. After making your assessment concerning the credibility of a witness, you may decide to believe all of that witness's testimony, only a portion of it, or none at all. In making your assessment, you should carefully scrutinize all of the testimony given, the circumstances under which each witness has testified, and every matter and evidence which tends to show whether a witness, in your opinion, is or is not worthy of belief. The instructions also ask them to consider, when determining believability, each witness's intelligence, motive to falsify, state of mind, and appearance and manner while on the witness stand. Yet much of this, for example, every matter and evidence, or a witness's appearance and manner, leave great room for subjectivity. The judge several times directed the jury to use, quote, common sense, and to view the evidence, quote, in light of your own observations and experience of the ordinary affairs of life, as if th this would manifest 12 identical compasses. For centuries, we believed that humans are generally rational beings, applying rational thought and usually achieving sound judgment, except under circumstances where our feelings get in the way. But in the 1980s, just after Vicki and Nancy were killed, a sea change began to sweep through the scholarly community. What if it wasn't that our feelings were the source of our errors in logic, experts began to ask, but rather that our, quote, machinery of cognition contained errors in its very design? 
Scholars who studied the processes of mind relevant to civil and criminal trial proceedings took up this idea with gusto. Researchers Nancy Pennington and Reed Hastie at the University of Colorado applied it to studying the workings of the mind of judges and juries and published a series of studies in the late 1980s and early 1990s that advanced a theory called the story model. Their theory holds that cognitively, instead of taking in each piece of information one at a time and judging it on its logical merits, humans tend to judge legal evidence en masse, forming a story out of it. We then match the story we have built to the relevant legal term, guilty or not, murder in the first degree or second degree, and so forth. Researchers found that the stories that judges and jury members construct influence their assessments of how credible a given witness is or the importance of a given piece of evidence. They also found that we tend to fill in any gaps in evidence with inferred causes and associations consistent with the story we've built and omit pieces of information that are unrelated or contradictory to our own story. That is, if you've already started to tell yourself that the defendant is a good guy, wrongly accused of murder, you will be more likely to disbelieve the ex-wife who takes the stand to testify to his violent temper and, fi and find reasons to discount the bloody footprint that matches his shoe, etc. The justice process is a war between competing stories and a quest to win the imagination of the people who matter at every stage, investigators, prosecutors, judges, and juries. But what factors determine why these people choose one story or another? Most experts in the field have come to the consensus that is the ease of story construction. That is, the easier it is for the parties that matter to form a story out of the events in the first place, the more likely they are to believe that story. According to the story model, two characteristics determine how believable an average person will find a story. Coverage, or the extent to which the story accounts for evidence, and coherence, or the story's wholeness, lack of contradictions, and plausibility. Essentially, the more familiar the story is then, the easier the narrative connection forged between teller and listener. At its most basic, many experts say, our brains work by slotting our experiences into molds of classic stories. Each time we hear a new story, we figure out what it means by trying to match it to one of our stored narratives. We are always looking for the closest possible matches, right? Roger Schenk and Robert Abelson, professors at Northwestern and Yale. We are looking to say, in effect, well, something like that happened to me too, or I had, idea, I had an idea about something like that myself. So I think I'll stop there. Um, and hopefully, when we get into talking more about it, we'll get a sense of why it's so important to think about um, the ways that we construct stories, because that has relevance both to the woman who died and also to the place itself. So I'm going to invite up Steph Cha. Thank you. Thank you. And for doing this while you're sick, yes. <laughs> I was like, I was like, ooh, how bad would it be to back out? It would be really bad. Um, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, I really enjoyed that reading. Um, and uh, and I like that we kind of get into a couple of the different strands of the book because um, I wanted to ask about that because I think this is a this is like an interesting book structurally. Um, because it does weave together um, kind of different genres. I mean, it's it's true crime, um, it, it's true crime and memoir, which like it it, it which some some it's you, a thing. Yeah. yeah, it is a thing. Yeah. But like, but it's also as you pointed out, um, it doesn't follow some of the conventions of true crime, and it doesn't follow all the conventions of memoir either. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. and so it's kind of this unique object 
that is that is very well reported and very personal. Um, and I was curious about um, you know how you how you went into the construction of this book um, and balancing those threads. Um. Yeah, for sure. Um, a lot of changing my mind, a lot of annoying my editor. Uh, but yes, essentially, I think I first thought I was writing two separate projects. Like I thought I was writing um, a reported story about these events that I knew had been really influential and difficult and had like spawned all of this trauma in this community that I cared about and had lived, but I was like, mm, let's keep those separate. And I, but I did also have this sort of gnawing feeling of like, um, what I did in this place as, again, like an employee of the American government, a quote unquote poverty worker, like that that had some ambivalent um, connection to the place I was in. And also I saw, I was sort of, you know, supposedly there to work with young women, but I felt actually all around me like the struggle um, to live and survive as a young man was extremely like pressing in this area as well. And I just felt like all those contradictions were kind of like pushing at me in a personal way as well of just like, yes, the questions of like, who am I and what did I do and was I good or was I bad? And were they like, were these people that meant a great deal to me? Like, um, was I harmed? Did I do harm by being there as someone that's quote there to alleviate poverty? All these questions. Um, and I felt like at some point uh, I realized that writing the narrative just of the crimes, like just doing the reporting and the research wasn't going to speak to like those deeper mm -hmm. questions that I really wanted to know the answers to, which had to be, had to do with like, um, what is it about this place that allowed like these events to cut so deeply into people? And what is it about this like particular structure of these crimes that, um, made people so bonkers. Like there's just so many people who confessed, there's so many people who ch recanted, so many people who changed their testimony, who accused loved ones or friends of these crimes. Um, and I was just, there was not enough in the um, just straight reporting that I felt could explain those emotional rifts. Mm -hmm. And so I felt I needed to bring in some other element. And the balance we struck was there are seven parts, five of them are reported, two of them are first person um, about my time there. And I also wanted to make sure to bring in like a contemporary thread because I think we also have this like idea of West Virginia or Appalachia is like lost by time or like long, long ago, there was a place called West Virginia, you know? And I was like, no, <laughs> like there, um, all of the interesting work and struggles and, um, you know, art and music that people were making uh, when I was there, I felt like that was relevant. and in a way also to um, the portrait of this community. So that was the balance we struck. It's, um, yes, again, like, I think, like, the, the people who love true crime are like, this is not true crime and I'm mad about it. And the people that love memoir are like, there's too much murder. So, like, it's tricky. It's like a tricky balance. Um, and I think that it's it's a book that I wish I could have read and, and encountered. So I hope that uh, it exists for those who are interested in a sort of strange hybrid. Well, and it's it, and it's very creative because I I'm, yes. I I was having a hard time thinking of kind of an antecedent, um, you know, um, and I I'm not surprised that you had to weave together these two strands too because one of the things that was striking to me about this book is how um, how the kind of players that that you you know the people that you just like hung out with how so many of them just ended up being kind of tied into the story in some way you yeah. know there's um. 
the uh, you ended up in like a writers group with the with the man who discovered the bodies. Yeah. Um. You know, and like in present day, uh, uh, your ex boyfriend was is working with one of the witnesses yep. who also who wouldn't talk to you. Correct. Yes. <coughs> the one who truly got away. Yes. Yeah. No. And so it was kind mm-hmm. of. I mean, uh, so like, how do you really separate that in this kind of like cold reported piece? Because these are people that you have a lot of affection for and that you have personal relationships with. Um, and and I think I, and I thought that was one of the really fascinating things about this book is kind of you get the um, you get the broad. Here's this. Here's this crime that happened in 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 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is 1980, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. So like it's the crime that happened 40 years ago, and then here are these people now who like are living with it in a very real way. Um, and so I I I, th- I think it could be pretty hard to separate. Yeah. Indeed. Um, so. You know, I, I I wanted to ask you about um, and you know and and I know you're very cognizant of this and you touched on it, but like you, you know as as a as a writer from New York and yeah. who went in there in this capacity as um you know like with uh, Vistacore, um, how how you approached you know because I think I think um, very early on you you kind of set up this you kind of very rightly so talk about the way that Appalachia is um, is, miscon- is misconceived by a lot of outside writers, um, you know, and so I wanted to ask how you approached writing about this place and uh, what pitfalls you thought you were able to avoid in the kind of, um, you know, I'm coming from elsewhere to write about this intimate environment um, and what pitfalls you feel like are actually unavoidable and, um, mm. and c- if you can talk about that ambivalence. Oh, for sure, yes. Many a night has been spent with this question um, in, a, in an important way. And I think that I try to um, talk in the book about, like, that there's this kind of pattern that happens with um, at least central Appalachia where um, we sort of as a broader culture in America, like, care about it because something goes wrong or it, it's clear, that, again, how much um, broader America is connected to Appalachia and people are like, what is this? What's happening here? We must understand it. And then we like forget about Appalachia for like 40 years and like people don't care again. And then it comes back around. And we're like living in this moment right now since like 2016 where we've like decided that Appalachia is like the cause of Trump and like Trump is upon us because of Appalachia, which is like factually incorrect. Like they're, um, you know, rich white people voted for Trump in far greater numbers than poor white people did. And like more people in the like suburbs of Philly where I live, like by a percentage voted for Trump than people like West Virginia would have gone for Bernie had he been the candidate, which is like a tough reality. Um, Complicated. Uh, well, it, was, yes. it, was also, it was also interesting, you know, um, I guess West Virginia is a state that has consistently gone Democrat, even yeah. in, even, even in, even in like the landslide elections, yeah. you know, like uh, they're the only ones who they're they're one of the only states that went against Reagan. Yeah, right? they they wanted to they voted to elect a caucus and yeah and yeah and like just the way that it's like every election until two thousand basically and then George W. Bush like really did start the slide towards a Republican um, like hold on West Virginia. But yeah, it's been a sort of like union strong like working class democratic state for most of the 20th century. Yeah, so I think um, I definitely feel like I'm a part of, I started writing this book in 2013, but in the sense of that I sold it in 2017, it's come out in 2020, it's certainly a part of this um, 
like I am complicit in this pattern of like being interested in Appalachia in this moment in a way that we have not been historically or, and I think that that's a long historical trend that has to do with like it's much easier to forget about a place that is applying, you know, so many resources um, that has been so historically like disenfranchised and exploited. Um, it's not pleasant to like commune with that reality all the time. So there's been a lot of tendency to just like forget uh, and then rediscover and then forget. So I'm certainly a part of that like rediscovery, I suppose, as of 2016. I think that um, I'm very interested and really appreciate. There's a book coming out. Next, actually, maybe it's this month. Kathy Park Hong's book. Um, oh, I think um, it's this yeah, month. I think, yeah, I, I, February twenty twenty. Minor feelings. Yes, or? it's called Minor Feelings, and I read it, and she had like the best articulation. I had been trying to like articulate what I was, where sort of my positionality fit in terms of this book, and I feel like she had such a wonderful way of putting it, which is that she said that um, when writing about an experience that's not your own, um, that she, she likes to think of it as a really productive way to do that is to write alongside an experience rather than writing into it or for it or eclipsing like the energy or the, um, center of that discussion, but to be a part of the discussion, like sort of standing with those mm -hmm. whose experiences are actually represented. And I thought that was a really helpful yeah. way of putting it. I don't know that, um, like whether or not I've achieved that here is like a matter of like debate as it should be. I think that um, I certainly tried to acknowledge that like upfront very um, transparently. And then that was like another reason why like, or as we have seen in like recent days with like American Dirt and all the things like writing fiction um, comes with a different set of difficulties and pitfalls than writing nonfiction does, although so does nonfiction. But I did I did think of writing this book in some ways as fiction in the beginning. It started mm -hmm. as a short story, and I just felt that um, my imagination could not supply the, the information that would make this work meaningful um, because it's not my community, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And so writing it as nonfiction... Um, felt much better in the sense that, like, there's, a, I think, a more robust tradition in um, nonfiction of people being like, this is who I am, this is what I'm bringing yeah. to it. Like, as I try to read in this section about believability, like, we're all bringing so much to our understanding of how we tell a story or interpret a story. So I wanted it to be really clear that um, I'm writing alongside this experience rather than for it. Um, but, yeah, really complicated and um, so when you when you were living in West Virginia, that was that was what like ten years ago. Oh, yes, weird. Yeah, two thousand nine to two thousand eleven. Mm -hmm. And did you have you kept in touch with like your community there? Like I was curious yeah. about the extent to which you're still like involved. Yeah, I did this thing where so um, the organization uh, in the book it's called Mountain Views. It's a um, it's not really called that, but that's what it's called in the book. Um, it is a very cool organization founded by uh, women from Southern West Virginia, and they hold – it's a nonprofit year-round, and then the summer becomes a camp. So I did go back every summer for, like, a month between the years of, like, 2011 and – even after I left, like, 2011 to 2017. So I still had um, a pretty strong relationship with that organization, and that helped me, like, maintain – 
good relationships with um, friends there and past coworkers and stuff. Everyone read um, everything in the book that's relevant to okay. them. So there was a lot of pre-showing of drafts and um, negotiations and some requests around um, like places that people wanted different you know, changes or questions or conversation. Like there was a lot of conversations that happened like before the book came out and in the lead up to the book, which were wonderful and difficult and yeah, um, yeah <laughs> like all the things. And I, I think that um, that in a lot of ways made the book coming out like a lot more, feel a lot more like true and, and ease my state of mind a bit because those conversations had been wrestled with not always like to the complete satisfaction of everybody, yeah. but um authentically I think you know a, a long time before were um were, was anyone in the community kind of suspicious when you started saying that you were gonna that you were working on this book and like yeah and how did that manifest and how did you deal yeah. with that I think that um I would say like the feelings about writing the book and the reactions to it from folks I'm close to there have been like mixed in the very truest sense of that like run the gamut from feeling like um not really sure why we need a book about these events that were already so difficult and already dragged on so long I guess my, my hope was always to that point like that there could be like that the truth is important that the truth like has been so um veiled and there are a lot of young people that I spoke to from the organization or from the region who were like I knew this stuff would happen but I never knew more about it and no one would talk to me about it and so my hope was always that even though there had been a lot of like kind of shitty coverage of it that hopefully just a, a, an accounting of like events and facts would um serve a purpose whether or not that's a healing purpose to some people or feels more difficult is valid and up for debate but um and then yeah also other responses from um, people I don't know personally, but who live in the area being like, um, this is really like well-researched and like represents us in a way I feel comfortable with. And I've, that's been like the um, biggest compliment. But yeah, there's been lots of things that are also like, um, I think anytime you are, that, that sort of like reactivation of trauma, like anytime you have been so um, like used to expecting being represented in a like shitty way an uncareful way I think people are certainly like on the lookout for that and so there's been places where I'm sure I stumbled and people have been wanting to talk about it or point that out and then other places where people are like oh I'm surprised we got that right good job and I was like thank you <laughs> there, there are a couple ex-boyfriends in this book there are yes um who are portrayed in very nuanced ways but that are not always positive yes and <laughs> and I wondered if um you know if they had any strong negative reactions or asked you to remove anything and are they going to sue you? Like, Hmm. I hope not. <laughs> um, yes, there was one ex-boyfriend who is not pleased. I think that we had a pretty nuanced conversation about it where, you know, I feel like he saw my ability and need to write the, these facts and acknowledge their truthfulness and I understood that they would be like painful and difficult for him to read about and we both kind of came to this place of like well I understand you need to do this and he was like yep I and I was like I understand you're not happy about it and he was like yep like I felt like it was a, a certainly an accounting of like our differences and mutual hurt but also like um mutual understanding to some extent so yeah but it was not pleasurable yeah 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was thinking about uh, one of the, one of the, um, I learned a lot about West Virginia in this book because oh, I, I, I yeah. haven't read, I haven't read a lot of books that uh, take place there. Um, and it's just, I'm, I'm pretty ignorant of that region. Um, um, but, um, one of the, one of the points you make in the book that I thought was pretty interesting is that this is a place that when it was prosperous, it was because of outside businesses coming in and extracting the natural resources. Mm-hmm. Um, first it was, uh, first it was the trees. Yep. Then... Big logging. This particular part of West Virginia is not coal country. It's, um, logging was the big industry. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and just, I was just thinking about, you know, the, the act of writing about this place. And I, and, you know, I have, I, I have, I have feelings about this too that are also ambivalent, you know, because yeah. I've, I've written about, I've written about things that have actually happened. And yeah, I was going to say, know, yeah. And, to, I, and I guess I want to ask like, you know, do you, do, like to what extent do you think that writing is extractive and mm-hmm. like, and to, and, to what extent is it not like you know? Because I think that the definition of extractive that you give in the book, and I think that that's that's the factual defi- uh, the um, accurate definition is that you are taking without 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 um, sowing seeds back in. Yeah. You know, you're removing resources without replacing them. So there's only so much yeah. that um, <clears throat> that you can do with that before it's just a dead industry. Um, and you know, and I wonder. Um, yeah, and I wonder if writing feels like that or if you think that there is something that you're putting back in the ground. Yeah, that's a um, it's well put. And I think, too, I always think of when I think of um, like a st- extraction in this particular community that there's this um, actually so Briary Knob where the two women were killed um, is a it's a reclaimed mine site now, um, not for coal, but for fracking, actually. And there's... Um, it's supposedly reclaimed because these companies have put these like, they're basically like green plastic pellets. That's what's sprinkled over the top of the earth, um, supposedly like to reclaim it, to make it usable again. And it's um, such a joke. And I think that, um, I think in my worst moments, I was like, I'm sprinkling plastic pellets on this mountain. Like that's what I'm doing. Um, And in my best moments, I don't think that. Uh, I think that to return to this idea of like we discover Appalachia and then we don't care again one of those booms was the local color novel movement which was a lot of writers from elsewhere right after the Civil War would like drive around through West Virginia and be like ah America like we have lost all of our like um, local traditions and like but look at this place that still has some like let's write novels about them and they were mostly like romance or sort of like historical fiction like the idea was to use a place as kind of the um literally the color like the uh, the stuff that was like juicy why readers would want to read it and um I that was I think learning about that history which really comes from um Elizabeth Katz's book what you're getting wrong about Appalachia which I hope is here it's really amazing it's a really um sm- like compact and smart uh public history of the region and she talks a lot about this very idea of like this was a true thing that happened. Like all these writers literally from like New York or Baltimore would come in and um, then sell these novels. Like they were sort of like the twilights of like the, um, <laughs> the moment, like just like a shit ton of money was made, um, which is really fascinating. And I think that um, money is a part of it, you know, and um, without like going to too much detail, I'll gladly chat with folks after like money has been a part of my process in terms of giving um, 
like targeted and intentional donations of money uh, into places like the Stay Project, which is an amazing, um, really cool organization that works with young people in Appalachia to stay in the region to support each other to create opportunities to make the region sustainable to like live in and be in as a young person or a queer person. Um, and also I think like uh, I try to be very, um, again with this idea of like writing alongside, like bringing attention and lifting up uh, stories and voices of people that are doing this work from the inside. So definitely um, tried in each chapter, each chapter is, is like sort of themed or named with, um, or sorry, each section, there's seven, are named with um, a West Virginia writer who I think should be read more, except for one section, which is for James Baldwin, so sorry. <laughs> but the other six. Um, and uh, certainly like an additional list in the back of all of these texts that um, not even were just ones that I read, but are just ones that I think speak to these issues in better and more complete ways than I do. So I don't know, am I a plastic pellet? Am I digging deeper? Both, probably both. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's a, I feel like it's a perennial writer question that can be applied to a lot of genres. Yeah. And actually, one of those genres is just to, true crime, generally. Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, I, I saw that um, one of the people who blurbed your book is the author of Dead Girls. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, which is which has some nice L.A. color, about, too. Yeah, it's like a collection about that kind of deals with the role of dead girls and women in in true crime, you know, uh, which is a genre that is heavily consumed by women. Um, and uh, and so I, I also wanted to ask you about that component, you know, writing about these dead women, because it's also, it, it's also the, um, you know, there, there, there are two women who are also very unconventional. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, they're these independent hitchhikers, who come to who come to the end that like in a horror in a horror story that yeah. like you know hitchhikers uh, will sometimes come to um, and uh, you know they're not conventionally attractive which is which is a thread in the book because yeah. and the, the way that the men of of uh, Pocahontas County react to them including the prime suspect is something that kind of colored your yeah. your opinion of the case um, and so I I want yeah I want I guess I wanted to ask you about Nancy and Vicky and. Um, you know how how you approach writing about these these women who have no voice because they were killed four years ago, um, and um, and and yeah, just uh, how you how you struck that balance of uh, of doing honor to them. Yes, I like love and hate that like the um, yeah because like I got to spend a lot of time with the like primary documents around their deaths, and I tried to always use like verbatim quoted speech rather than just like my narrative voice in describing these women and their bodies which felt important because I'm sort of more interested in like what is it like for a person in in actually in the events to look at a dead body than I am in what I think of looking at a, a sort of intellectual idea of a dead body so um yeah the word that the coroner used to describe them was obese they were both obese and um, I'm interested in like fatness and the way that we talk about like fatness and women's bodies as well and it was just like fascinating that that was the word that was used it probably speaks to like some 1980s idea of like what fat meant you know but um, right like that was in a lot of the coverage that was about these crimes they were um, uh, they were fat they Vicky had uh, like a buck tooth like prominent teeth uh, they were um, uh, like not, uh, they were like not like shaving their legs. So like there was a lot of like discussion of their intimate physical bodies yeah. in the um, coverage of the these events that I was just like, 
both grossed out by and also like very interested in because I'm like I'm like those things like I'm like a fat hairy lady so like that speaks to me and I liked that about them I think that attracted me to the story and gave me a way um into it in a way that I would not have been interested in talking about like a JonBenet Ramsey or like a tiny blonde lady uh in the sense that like those are not the people that are mostly killed like the sort of Mm -hmm. ideal looking people um and those are not the people that I tend to be most interested in. Of course, the, they are like white girls, which is um, certainly part of the trope. And I think it was always like a compromise in many ways that flood, like flooded through the whole book of like, there's these like concerns or ambivalences or things I want to challenge. And then there are also the facts um, of these particular events. So the fact is like two women were found, they were white women. And I had to figure out like how to sort of challenge and push against that trope at the same time that it was a true thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was always like that both and tendency of like how to represent them, how to um, push against like the reader's fascination with their bodies. So I did try to like, uh, yeah, definitely use like as much in the period of information and documents as were available. And also like, yeah, as I was trying to uh, say in the beginning, like show that there's a multitude of reasons why people would travel or leave home. Some of them have to do with um, desperation and urgency. Some of them have to do with just like what's out there. I want to go on an adventure. And I think for these um people it was like some of both but yeah there were some really painful moments like the yeah the main suspect of the crime like looks at pictures of them and is like I couldn't have killed them because they were fat basically which like um, assumes this connection between like killing and sexual violence which is not there in this case like there's no there's no evidence of uh, sexual assault in this case and there's no evidence that like sex or sexuality played a role in their deaths but that's kind of like always assumed which um I was trying to break down as well like that's not really the motive here but it's like sort of always what we think yeah no that was a particularly that was particularly tough to swallow indeed but yeah how do you navigate that in your fiction too like thinking about um writing about death like how do you handle pushing back against those tropes yeah, I try to I, I try to be respectful. I think I think that's the main thing is to um, try to do honor to, you know, it's, it's, especially if I'm writing about something real, which like my book is based on uh, on a murder that happened in 1991, and um, you know, and especially kind of fictionalizing it, I wanted to make sure that I didn't erase it from history, and I yeah. kind of did I did some did honor to the legacy of that of that particular LA history. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of a hard balance, you know, it's uh, something that I thought about a lot as I was writing the book. I think there's a real responsibility that comes in to, um, engaging with, um, with these stories that, uh, that are still like carried in the minds of people who live through them. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I'm going to ask one, I, I have a bunch of questions actually, but <laughs> I, I, I'm going to ask one more before yeah, opening it up. It. And if nobody else has questions, I can ask more, but, um, <laughs> uh, the, the title the third rainbow girl, mm-hmm. um, you know, because the, uh, Nancy and Vicky never got to go on their adventures. Um, you know, they, they, they never, ma- they never even made it to the rainbow gathering. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, and then there's this third, but there's this third woman who, who she isn't actually in a lot of the book. Yeah. Um, but um, but you say early on that this book uh, she's kind of the heart of the book in a way, um, and you know obviously you titled it after her um, and you met her and she kind of comes in at the end of the story, and she is somebody who is still alive and was able to go on these adventures because she she made this decision to split paths with them, um, and so I want to ask you about her and uh, yeah. and the title and why why um, 
why she has this um, central place to you in this story. Yeah, I think it's like very unusual. Normally I switch titles like 50,000 times, to, but this t- book only ever had this title. Um, I think um, Liz Jondro, who again is this, right, this woman who hitchhikes with her friends, they go to this gathering and die, and she goes in a different direction and lives a very like full and strange and open life. She still sort of like lives out of her van to some extent um, in Vermont. She sort of she like did not um, she like opened up more to the universe instead of closing down after these um, friends of hers were killed, which I found fascinating. Mm-hmm. So I think once I learned of her existence, I she was like probably the first real person that I reached out to for an interview. So she always in some ways was the like gateway into this mm-hmm. story for me in the sense of, um, which I think speaks to like other threads in the book, which uh, so hopefully the title ends up, you know, expanding to include other people because what Liz said to me like in this very first interview was... Um, I wasn't harmed by these <laughs> events, but I was traumatized in the sense that uh, I was not literally there, but mm-hmm. like its effects were still felt like in me and my life and my body for a long time. And she talked about this very profound experience of survivor's guilt of um, carrying this like idea that she had escaped this fate in some way, and also that um, it, a broader sense of like that there was like violence out there that had not reached her. Mm -hmm. And I think then the more I talked to um, people in the County, the more it seemed to me that there were actually a lot of different third rainbow girls, including um, these like nine guys who were arrested or accused. Some of them served periods of time in jail between like two months and two years. Um, The central guy who was convicted served nine years Um, Many of the guys who served shorter periods of time just sat in the county jail due to, like, the cash bail system, essentially, that we're seeing um, now more so than ever in places like Philadelphia, where I live, Baltimore, Chicago, uh, New York. Like, this idea, essentially, of you can get, you know, locked up on the basis of a single statement, and then if you don't have money, you sit there until until they let you go. And so uh, many of these men um, involved in this case were incarcerated for no reason basically and also um then had family members that felt the effects of that um children that that grew up in the shadow of knowing their dad had been accused of that or cousin or brother or whatever and that there were lots of people that were not directly there in that moment but were certainly um carrying like the trauma of it so that became kind of like the central understanding I had of this case which was like all of the ways that people um may not have been at the heart of the violence but were certainly like um, their lives were like rewired by it too. Yeah. Um, do people have questions? <laughs> I just don't want to hog. Tush. Yeah. Hi. Is there a transcript on the trial? Is there one? Like a oh, okay. Yes. So fun story, which is that um, trial transcripts are extremely difficult to get a hold of. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are. We can talk more of the nerdy, nerdy details, but essentially trial transcripts belong to court reporters, people that take them down in court. They're technically their intellectual property, which is crazy to me. So they cost a great deal of money to obtain. So I could never get, I actually did go and sit um, in the county clerk office in the area where this crime happened and took like individual photos of like 
3,000 pages of trial transcript. That took a long time, um, which was probably not the most efficient way to go about it. But you you can't take them out of the office if you can't buy them, and they cost between a dollar and $3 a page. So for like 2,000 pages, 3,000 pages, it was out of my reach. But then once I did sell the book, I decided that it was the right thing to do to pay to buy the transcript, like to pay, because court reporters are... It's a really cool and amazing, interesting, like, middle-class job, especially for women in rural areas. It's one of the first, like, well-paying middle-class jobs that women have access to in a lot of these areas. So, and the, um, the, the money from transcript purchases actually, like, is viewed as part of their salary. It's sort of like when you pay, like, a server $2 and then you're supposed to, and then you tip them, that makes a livable wage. The same is true for, um trial transcripts so I was like okay I want to buy this from you and that also made the fact checker's life a lot easier so yeah yeah, it's it's complicated though and you can I wanted to quote like a gazillion pages of the trial transcript I was telling people earlier but my editor was like dial it back (laughs) um because I'm always again really interested in what was actually said but um we did come to a compromise of like weaving it in I'll I'll speak summarize the, the transcript will come in and I also did get to watch the tapes of the trial there were um it was the first uh gavel to gavel fully televised trial in the state of West Virginia which is interesting because it also coincides with like the dawn of the um 24-hour like news cycle where people could watch real like courtroom drama Mm -hmm. going on um which then sort of like spawns all we've come to see with like law and order and csi like all of that sort of began in the early 80s so that's a long answer but yes there was one and yes it's really interesting Oh, yeah. What, how were the men told? How were the men defined? Yeah, very interesting. Yes, I think that um, there was a lot of implicit blaming of um, Vicky and Nancy, those two women who died, because they were mostly because they were hitchhiking. Came the, a lot of the blame came from that. Like, well, if you go out the door as a hitchhiker, like, what do you expect? Kind of. Um, and again, this writer Vanessa Vaselka, who I love a lot, says that you know that's um, like the story that oh, if a woman goes out the door as a hitchhiker, she's essentially already dead is a really um harmful just as a story that if we could actually change that story and talk about all the reasons why um women and queer people and trans people travel alone and for whatever reason then that would actually affect like real world um ability of like lots of different bodies to travel in the world which I think is an interesting idea that like stories and real outcomes have like a sort of feedback loop with each other the power of story right um, but yeah, I think what you're referring to, again, this book, Alice Bull and Dead Girls, uh, it's an essay collection, talks a lot about, right, that in something like, um, yeah, like even like a Law and Order SVU, like so much of, we're not actually interested in like the lives of women, we're interested in the lives of men, which is um, like the Dead Girls, just like a vehicle to look at men. And I was 
I think aware of that as a potential like pitfall in this story, but I'm also like legitimately am very interested in masculinity and am interested in Appalachian masculinity in this case because so much of like the story that was told about these murders was like, we don't know, like bad Appalachian hick dudes like did this for no reason. That was like the original story. And so part of my interest was sort of in like deconstructing that idea um but then I think like as is hopefully clear like my heart and empathy always like lay with um Vicky and Nancy to some extent although I also have a lot of empathy and interest in um these guys too so that's kind of the both end of the book is like women are suffering men are suffering everyone's suffering neither of those sufferings like negates or cancels out the other right it's complicated No, fair. Um, I form an opinion which I'm like I feel fairly clear about in the book, which is that I yeah. don't think it was a local guy. I think, and, and, and I mean, I guess that's one of the few spoilers. But mm, I mean, yeah. I, but yeah, I I I agree. I mean, it's yeah. like <coughs> oh no, <coughs> sorry. But I, there were these competing stories, and I th- I do think it's interesting that that um that this you know because the, the the part that you read about um you know how we latch onto these stories that makes sense i think it's telling that the story of these seven men who yeah. like were all kind of involved in some way um that sold as a story yeah um sure. because when you once you kind of examine it it like doesn't make sense nobody's stories nobody's individual stories actually match up the the main the main suspect i mean one of the things that they found so suspicious about him is because he is that he told this story that obviously didn't happen about like no. the third rainbow <laughs> girl who was like yeah. d- who was like chopped up in a wood chipper you know and it's there, it's which just, is like a cra- crazy violent like right out of a like it's a Fargo bad horror movie yeah. yeah exactly it's literally like Fargo exactly yeah i love that yes right and that um but that was believable he knew that would be believable to some extent yeah. and like th- he had imagined that story which so i'm yeah i find that fascinating but comp- both yeah. but both the outsiders and the insiders really yes. bought into this you yes. know and and i i do want to leave time for other questions but um but like i i was i was actually curious too about like you know cuz you talked to you you talked to the detective in this case although he seemed pretty defensive but you it seems like you spent a lot of time with the prosecutor i did and these are men who who absolutely believe that they had the right guy mm-hmm. and and one of them said the reason that he believes it is because he made these like menacing phone calls yes in the very beginning that's how he got onto the detective's radar and they never got off of that story it's true, and I think um, our folks... Did anyone listen to Dolly Parton's America in here? Mm-hmm. So fun, right? Yes, great. And I feel that... Um, I bring that up, which is just to say that, as you said, like insiders and outsiders both believed this very like basic, strange, sort of stereotyped story. And I think what that show does really well, there's like an episode about um, Appalachian accents, right, and the ways that uh, we still want... Um, to eradicate an Appalachian accent in many ways and that many young people growing up in central Appalachia are like so shamed for the way they speak and like literally their language and the director of the nonprofit that's in here Mountain Views she like went to Harvard and ended up dropping out because um there was just like so much disdain for her language and the way she spoke and I think that it's impossible to grow up and live in a place um for which like broader America has such 
discussed and and disdain which is central Appalachia to a great extent without absorbing a lot of that like shame and mm-hmm. those attitudes like in a similar way to talking about um like internalized misogyny or internalized mm-hmm. racism like I think there is internalized anti-West Virginia-ness and internalized anti-Appalachian-ness and I think there was a great sense in the investigators who are local for, to a a degree, the prosecutor is from Pocahontas County, the detective is from broader West Virginia, but that they, I think there was a great sense of like, this is, we are bad, like something bad happened here and we have to like root that out and make yeah. it better. And they decided immediately that the person had to be local. Yes. I mean, that's, right. that's so fascinating. Like, It would have been on... so much easier to be like, someone else did it from somewhere else, but yeah. they were like, no, it was one of us and we are going to fix it. Yeah. That was one of the first like kind of yeah, fixed points of their narrative, and yeah. it never really changed. Um, and and you know the guy that you think did it, and that uh, I mean I think there's the strongest case for um, his having done it is is um, a serial killer who is who who was there at the time. Um, and ma- um, yes, many people will disagree, and I don't know that we'll like ever know, which is yeah. another part of um, like what this book taught me. I feel like, which is just like it's sometimes we just like we'll never know and like that's an okay place to end even though it doesn't feel good yeah Yeah. no and and there are people who who very strongly believe in in narratives like that they remember that can't possibly coexist in the real world and I think that's pretty fascinating um yes Marty Totally. Yeah. It was really hard because, like, again, as we know, like, human beings process stories in, like, a simple way, and we want it especially to, like, be readable. Like, it's a book that, you know, starts on page one and ends on page whatever, 315. So, like, that ultimately we have to manage all that like complexity and contradiction but still like bring a reader along for that ride which is really hard I think my solution was to essentially tell all of them but from um man like like tell a through line back up tell it again back up tell it again back up tell it again and like just be like there is um even if there cannot be like factual truth in some of the stories that were told, I think every story is important for its like emotional truth or like what it's trying to convey. Like, um, you know, I think in this case of like this one guy confessed to the murders, there's no way, like there's no evidence that he was there or even did it like, but he, I think he was trying to convey something of like, I feel like I have done wrong in some way in some other sense to some other woman in my life, like who's to say, but like that, that emotional truth is also important. So I tried to like hold those all in the book, even if, um, even as I do try to acknowledge that I think some of them happened in the world of like where you and I live and some of them happened in the world of someone else's heart and brain. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. Jen. None for you. Yeah. Hmm. Thanks. Yes. I think it's really interesting the the right, this guy who did um uh he committed this long string of, of horrible, senseless crimes in the late nineteen seventies, mostly against men of color and white women and interracial couples. And he has a very like clear 
basically what I learned about him was like, he was like, I was so mentally ill. Like he was medicated at the end of his life and he was like, I was so ill and I was so angry. And, um, this was like, I wish I could undo like, yeah, like tons of brain damage, so much damage, so much like, right. Like, of course, like like a childhood of severe abuse, extreme, right. Like we understand that like people are not made in a vacuum. So I think I had a lot of empathy for him. Um, I I feel both very empathetic and very confused still by Jacob Beard, who is the um, guy who was convicted of these crimes. Like, I feel empathetic towards him in the sense that I do not think he's a murderer. I also kind of think he's a bit of, like, an asshole, you know? Yeah, he just, like, sucks. Yeah, he just, like, kind of sucks. And I feel like there's, like, this whole narrative of, like, if someone is wrongfully convicted, like, they are this, like, amazing, like, martyr, and, like, you know, we read these stories that are super important, like, Khalif Browder, who was, like, um, essentially held for no reason, like, quote-unquote, for stealing a backpack, and, like, he is this, like, smart, interesting, articulate young man, and, like, he's a very good um, figure for, like, this movement of, of wrongful incarceration and youth incarceration, and, like, what do you do when you have, like, a figure who's, like, not he's, I don't think he's a murderer, but he's just, like, not a nice guy, um, and so I tried to make that clear, but I think it's clear that I don't like him either, uh, and, yeah, I was never really able to find a way into his stuff, because he wasn't very honest with me, I didn't feel, in his interview, like, he was, um, he was just kind of, like, see my side, like, love me, believe me, and I was, like, I don't love you, you know, and that, um, I think because he, I wasn't able to, like, be with him in his brain, he wasn't open to that, uh, understandably in some ways, because there's been so much coverage of this case being, like, you're bad, you're a murderer, like, sure, I probably would be defensive too, but he, I felt he was fairly, um, he just lived in this other plane of, like, I'm, um, perfect, and everyone has been accusing me of these crimes, and I don't know why, and I was kind of like, well, I do, you know, like, if he could have acknowledged some of that, I think I would have had more empathy for him, so that was hard, and I don't know that, like, I'm pretty honest about that I don't like him, but also, I don't think he killed them, which is a weird thing to live with, yeah. Um, tough. It's like they're people and they're characters and they're people, right? Like they're real. Um, I think Vicky Durian, I started off like being more, sort of more interested in Nancy Sinamero, who's from Long Island and is kind of like outdoorsy. She wanted to be a park ranger. I was like, that's cool. I'm into her. And then I, um, was, was like very gracious that Vicky Durian, this other woman who died, who's from Iowa, her family was, let me sort of come and hang out with them for a while, which was unexpected. I wasn't sure how much they would want to participate. And um, they told me this really difficult and fascinating story about how she had had this child that she had given up for adoption at this time when forced adoption was really common. Like Joni Mitchell wrote this like memoir about reuniting with her daughter, right? About this period of forced adoption and the ways that like before there was abortion, like it was really, you had no choice. And, um, that Vicky had this child and that she, that really changed my understanding of her, I think, and like her journey and why she would want to go on this adventure, which was like great and exciting for her and also risky as we know. Um, 
and just that, she, yeah, she had a lot of like pain and unhealed stuff from that was helpful in understanding like what she was doing, what she was looking for. So yeah. And that came from a real revel, like personal disclosure from her real family. Um, and I think that's like, what's so fun and magical about reporting when it works is like, there's all this stuff that you don't know, you don't know. And then someone will tell you something and it like completely changes your idea of, um, who people are. Reporting is like magical in that way, hopefully. Yes. Uh, one of the things in your book that really um, I liked a lot was that it was the book was a lot about you and your own. Unfortunately, book. yes. <laughs> and there was a moment in the book where I kind of had this sense like I was worried about you. Oh. And that like yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, I was curious just about your own development during the process of writing the book. Yeah, there was someone actually who came to my New York event, which you were at also, lovely Billy, uh, who was like, um, worked in criminal justice as a defense attorney. And she was, she asked me about my like self-care, like in writing this book, like how do you deal with difficult material? And I was like, how do you deal with difficult material? You know, like I think everyone who works in and around, you know, even does research or, you know, fic fiction is also in this category of like when you're working with this kind of like really heavy material, it's um, very, I mean, I did dream about murder like every night for like three years. That is true. And um, I think that... I didn't always know, like, what to do with that feeling of, like, um, this feels hard to write about. Like, is that okay that it feels hard? Uh, I think that I definitely felt a lot of ambivalence of, like, it feels hard to write about it, but, like, it feels harder to live it. You know, that question of, like, do I get to feel bad about this? Do I get to feel traumatized? Does my story matter? Um, and then I think, like, writing that... Um, beginning part, which is just called, like, True Things, just a list and that starts the book, uh, I was thinking about it, and I was like, well, all of these things happened to other f people that are important and difficult and traumatizing, and, like, another true thing is, like, that I also was there, and also things happened to me, and that's, like, another true thing on the list, <laughs> and that gave me the opportunity, I think, to feel like, even though they weren't all on the same weight, they were all true and happened, so... Yeah, it was. Yeah, it is. There is a good amount of that processing in there. Um, well, I think um, that's that's the time we have. Yeah. Um, but um, Emma will be signing books. They're available for purchase around. over there. Thank yeah. you all for coming. This is this Thank was a you pleasure. Thank so much for being in conversation. Such a good chat. Thank yeah, you. Really so thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, Thank you, Emma. I hope you enjoyed your stay in Los Angeles. Oh my God! Still in process. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And thank you, Steph, for coming. I know you're not well, so um, she's going to scooch on out of here as soon as the event is, is Yay, good. Yeah, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but we do have signed copies of Steph's book available if you'd like to, to get a copy of that. Um, we obviously have copies of Emma's book. Um, please uh, just take one. a copy of it. <coughs> but if you bought the book first, before you got them signed, um, I'll move all of Steph out of the way, bring out a table where she can sign these. Oh. Um, also, if you're a member of the store, you always get priority in the time line. Just know that. So just Ooh, that's a good fun perk. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Mm. So just identify yourself and you get to have your book signed first. 
astrology or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you all very much. Thank you. Can you sign my book? You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.